Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Dr. Veera Rajagopal, who is known on Twitter for his prolific tweet threads. He is at Dr. Veera, spell out Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R. And he's a scientist at Regeneron, focused on drug discovery and neuroscience and psychiatry, really focused on the on the genetic side of precision medicine drug discovery. So first of all, Vera, thanks so much. We're going to have a special episode wrapping up 2022 and looking on to 2023. So thank you for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Patrick, for having me on the podcast. I'm excited for today's conversation. Great. So we are going to uh, just give a quick intro to Vera and a little bit about his work. Uh, then we're going to spend some time recapping 2022. Again, if you don't follow him on Twitter and his Substack, which we'll come back to a, a little while later, which is an email newsletter platform, he does amazing tweet breakdowns of some of the latest science and genetics. Uh, and he's put together three of the areas where there have been some major interesting pieces of science and themes emerging in 2022. So we'll go through that first. And then we've both put together two, maybe call them predictions or, or areas to focus on for 2023 that we'll cover off in the end of the episode. So to start off, I'd actually just love to hear, Vera, how did you get into um, the amazing tweet threads that you do summarizing some of these incredibly complex papers that take normal people six hours to 20 hours to read and digest <laughs> and you break them down into these beautiful 10 minute threads how did that come about where did it start so i've been i guess i've been like on twitter since 2015 but i was like not using that much i think around 2019 uh, that's when i actually finished my phd i uh, started spending quite a lot of time on twitter and um you know, it's just, it just happens just like that, that I, I just noticed that, you know, like things sometimes that they say are people are uh, resonating in people and from their feedback. So I think uh, this is naturally reinforced my, you know, like a Twitter activity and I started doing it regularly on a regular basis. Yeah. So that's how it started. And then I kind of completely shifted to writing only about you know mostly about the papers that i read and, and 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 the summary so so one thing that i often noticed in twitter is that people uh, tweet, tweet about all the papers they just retweet it or you know just uh, put the title but you know like when you actually take some time to read it read it and you know, or give them like two points or something and it kind of people like it more because people also find it more useful and um, uh, particularly students so yeah, so that that I really enjoy tweeting about it. It's mostly an activity for my own self-learning. So uh, when you start, you know, like when you look at an article or read an abstract, you know, it's like might look very simple. Oh, it's clear. It's under, you know, I can understand it. But when you try to summarize it or, you know, just one sentence or two sentences on your own, you write about it, just you kind of, you start to think about a lot of questions that you didn't think when you were reading. So I really found it like very useful to understand. And uh, naturally, it, it became more useful for the for the followers, for the readers as well. I'm trying to do as much as possible like before, but I've been not doing that, that much when I was in academia, but uh, trying to keep, keep up. So hopefully we'll be able to do it in the future as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and you've launched a Substack as well, which is, as I mentioned before, an email newsletter maybe a little bit longer form how how did you decide to do that and and is it going to be the same things you're posting on twitter but with a little bit more color and less structure that the tweet threads and force you to have certain characters or what's your what's your plan yeah. for that 
I mean, I always uh, was interested in writing blogs and everything. But, you know, I have this typical trait of novelty seeking and, you know, not that much of delayed gratification. So, and I lack discipline. So the the reason why I was like very good, I've been like successful in the Twitter is that it takes only a very short amount of time, most often, you know, and uh, I can able to keep my focus and everything and get it out, and, you know, right. But when I, when I want to write a long post, <laughs> I have to like really follow a discipline practice and take more time. And I tried so many attempts in the past to start blog posts. I, I, I think I even lost count of how many blog websites I started, but I kept failing at it, you know, at some point when I easily lose the interest. But um, recently, a lot of people kept saying, a lot of my friends kept saying, telling me that, you should start a Substack, you know, like definitely people will love it and you should, uh, you should try Substack. And the reason changes in Twitter, the yes. takeover and everything, people started migrating. So I was like a bit worried. Oh, you know, like all these years of effort building up this network, I might lose. So I thought uh, it's, it's high time that I started. And uh, so far I'm enjoying it. I'm, it's kind of uh, helping me to follow the practice of self-discipline. So because it takes more time and uh, people are le- more forgiving in Twitter if you do typos and uh, grammatical mistakes, but not so in a blog post so that you need you need to be more, you know, working on it. I really enjoy it. But in terms of what I have, what I'm planning to post there, I, I'm still like uh, not very sure about it. But, um, you know, like I, I, I think that so it, the thing that I feel about this uh, uh, attention you know like fo- uh, focus only for a short time and so it's the same thing for others as well so people can the messages will reach out to people if you say one or two things at a time or just in a few in a thread but if you want to ask the people to go to a blog post and read something for like that can take 15 to 20 minutes not everyone can read it so i'm just trying to plan in a way that i continue to do what i do in the twitter and that's the most successful way of uh, uh, communicating science but i in uh, also i will also spend time to do more structured posts where i put multiple papers that fall under a theme and you know tell in a way in a typical storytelling way just trying to find out wo- how things work out so 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 for three posts i have done so based on like a list of papers one for the thanksgiving and and also i did one for based on the chat gpt i just gave an iq test and uh, Yes. Uh, summarized it so people liked it so yeah so for the next post is like i'm going to write a big summary of 2022 highlights hopefully we'll get it out and uh, before the new year or very close to the new year yeah excellent i think you have at least six major areas we're only going to cover three of those so if people want to get the other three they can go over to your Substack and subscribe it's called gwas stories right gwas yeah stories. so yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> G was to, uh, it's, it just came from my, you know, like the name G was storyteller. I think I, you, you know, Eric Foreman, right, from Pfizer. So he, he, he describes himself as G was whisperer. So, yeah. so I, I just for fun, I someday, I think I just uh, updated my profile saying G was storyteller. And I, I, I didn't really plan to keep it, but it, people liked it. And, you know, like, so I thought, and then okay let's keep it like that and so then i gave the same similar name to a similar theme for the substack 
we're not going to cover chat GPT. It wasn't on either of our 2023 genetics lists, but um, I, I, I can't <laughs> help but ask because I'm fascinated by it. What, what do you think about it? You've used it and written about it. What's your sense of it? I mean, like, uh, I'm not a very machine learning person. So I, I have a lot of friends over there. So, so far, the response is that they are not like as much, you know, uh, impressed by like how I, I'm impressed. But I, I think that it's really amazing that uh, an algorithm can converse with you like a, like in a, in like a human and you yeah. be able to get so much information out of it. And, you know, people already, I think there's like hundreds of different ways you can use it. I think it's really going to be very useful for in an academic setting to write, uh, you know, like help with writing grant application, even papers and uh, summarizing. I'm even worried that, you know, like ChatGPT will take over my job in the Twitter of summarizing the... <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you've given somebody that idea. I, I don't think it can quite... I think it's amazing. The uh, And it's only going to get better. I do think it's mainly good at synthesizing. I haven't seen... I mean, besides some like funny examples, like you ask it to write a poem in the style of Jar Jar Binks or something like that. It is always going to struggle with invention of the new frontier, right? So I think there's... Um, but I think it's amazing. I, I'm with you. I'm yeah. not a card-carrying machine learning person, but I'm pretty impressed with what it can do. I just even ordered a book, you know, there was this one of the adorable uses to write children's stories. And like, you can also use ChatGPT to create the appropriate prompt to create the illustration in .e, right? So yeah. there was this guy who used ChatGPT to tell a small children's story and then used ask the ChatGPT to give the prompt for the Dali and he published a book <laughs> in Amazon. I think it's been successful. Uh, probably is making a lot of money out of it. That's I mean, amazing. but I, I, I the moment I saw the tweet, I ordered it because it kind of marks this occasion of this, how this chat GPT, you know, this release of this chat GPT and how the world has been using it. So uh, I have this book. So probably like a few years down the, from now, when I look at it book, I can remember this, uh, this time. So yeah, it's, it's really great. I mean, from a layperson's perspective, uh, I say it's like mind blowing what it can do. Actually, I am. We'll see if how frequently my wife listens to these episodes. We have a six month old daughter, and I am going to make her a Christmas story book for the holidays. I'm going to do that tomorrow, <laughs> and we'll see if she listens to this before uh, before I give it to her. She <laughs> you should try ChatGPT, and yeah, yeah also that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, I, what I think I'll do is I'll write the story, and then I'll feed the prompts to Dolly and see what happens. <laughs> Just one more question about you before we dive into the 2022, 2023 and your, in your day job when you're not um, telling GWAS stories, you're a drug discovery scientist at Regeneron. What, what do you focus on for those who aren't as embedded in the relationship between genetics and, and drug discovery? What is, what is that all about? Uh, and, and why is genetics so important? And why are, you know, why, why, why are you so interested and focused on this? Yeah, sure. So I joined Regeneron Genetic Center like in May 2021. So before that, I was uh, in Denmark. I did a PhD in psychiatric genetics and also postdoctoral fellowship. So I studied the genetics of psychiatric disorders. But um, as I started to read widely, so I, I have a medical background. So I was trained as a physician. Yeah, and uh, so I had a very I have a broad interest in uh, the genetics of you know all the diseases and human diseases and started reading more about it then i really you know started getting interested more in how genetics is being used in the drug discovery research 
So one of my thing, you know, like when I, when I moved my research career from a, being a clinician to a full-time scientist, it's always that, you know, you have this feel that you are maybe not, you know, you have spent so much time, like 10, more than 10 years in, in the clinical res, uh, practice, and then now you're not using that uh, knowledge. So then at that, so I found this field of drug discovery research is an excellent opportunity where I can combine my, my expertise in genetics, but also uh, my expertise in, you know, medicine to make some, you know, like discoveries or may, uh, to do research that just has more translation potential. So luckily, and uh, the time when I realized it is actually the high time when the whole field shot started shifting towards this area and uh, all the lot of former companies started investing in uh, in the human genetics. So that's the background. So I and I got this opportunity at Regenron. I moved there. So what we are doing here, you know, uh, at Regenron, so I am part of this translation genetics group, which focuses on neurological diseases and also psychiatric and ophthalmological diseases. So what we basically do is do we large scale genetic association studies. We look at, uh, we focus a lot uh, more on the rare variants based on exome sequencing data. And one of the major goals for us is to identify naturally occurring mutations that kind of protects the disease and to understand what is the underlying mechanisms that uh, leads to this protective effect. And if we can try to mimic that using drug design, and a very good example is PCSK9, and we have so many other examples now. And so this is the, this is the most important goal. But also we do not just focus on that, but also other findings, also risk increasing uh, findings as well, because sometimes it can just open up the biology, uh, biological uh, understanding of the diseases. And yeah, so that is my day-to-day -day job to run large-scale genetic studies, to understand diseases and look for opportunities to help with the drug discovery in, at the company. Yeah, and one of the themes we're going to touch on later is the sheer growth in volume of genetic studies, but also now the transition from exomes to genomes and what that opens up. And, and for those who aren't aware, Regeneron Genetics Center has been one of the, and probably the number one company that has taken up large-scale sequencing and embedded into their drug discovery process. AstraZeneca, GSK, a number of others have made very significant investments in genetics. But when, whenever you go to American Society of Human Genetics, the major conference every year, it's like 10% of all of the talks are somebody from Regeneron talking about the amazing genetics they're doing. That's only recently, right? So yes. I, I, I just heard from one of my friends that this year's ASHE, who is a senior scientist from a former site. So he's, he was like impressed by the amount of representation of industry scientists at this series he yeah. said just few years back perhaps 10 or even less the people from industry you know presenting any genetics for people industry scientists are like treated like an outcast but the tables have turned so such a big transformation <laughs> yeah it's 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 a big shift maybe one we'll we'll come back to later okay so diving first into 2022 we talked about a couple of major milestones um, so we're going to dive into three different areas I'm going to let you introduce the first one, which you've titled as some mind-blowing genetics. And we'll talk through a couple examples within this theme. So I'll turn it over to you to explain what you mean by this and talk through a couple of the examples. So, yeah. So, so I was like past few days, I was just, you know, looking at uh, all my old Twitter threads 
And I do this, like been doing this for like two years now that at the end of the year, I just look at all the Twitter deaths and try to see what are the biggest stories and, you know, like uh, put them under some themes. Last year, it was, I, I posted like few threads. It was, it was very successful actually. So when you asked about this podcast thing, so I, then I started looking into it. It's also very difficult to choose as there's so many findings. So it's just probably from my personal perspective, these are the major ones, but I'm sure there are so many other things but that I'm probably not aware of, I haven't read or I missed it. I chose like three major themes, uh, like three studies for, for perhaps in each of the theme to highlight. The first three themes are one is like called mind-blowing genetics, findings that are really like you feel like an, you know jaw-dropping findings. And then milestone achievements. And, uh, you know, so it kind of marks the stage where we have reached something, you know, achieved some success in the in, in the long progress of the human genetics research. And then third theme is step in the right direction, uh, focusing on, you know, what are the research that, you know, should be uh, happening in the in the, the way that we, we think is like in the right direction by focusing on non-European ancestry based research and everything. So the first one is mind-blowing genetics. So I, I think like I, I chose three. There are so many. And I, the first one is, I think it's clear anyone will agree with this. That's the biggest story of this year is this paper that came out a few weeks ago in Nature that showed how Black Death, you know, the plague has uh, caused a, a natural selection uh, at a speed never seen before. So so natural selection is like you know, survival of the fittest. So the genes that kind of, it's only the genes that, you know, uh, give some kind of survival benefits uh, pass on to the generation after generation, the variants, right? So that's the underlying theme of natural selection. We learned about this in a lot of contexts like protection against, you know, like in malaria or sickle cell, you know, variant and also a lot of different uh, natural selection examples we know. But those are all, you know, process that's been happening for so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. But we never came across a example where a natural selection happens so drastically. So here they were able to do it. They, it's based on ancient DNA research. So they identified ancient DNA samples uh, spanning three uh, periods. One is before the Black Death. So the Black, uh, the bubonic plague epidemic, particularly in the Europe, that is in the middle of the 13th century. So that's where, that's their timeline. So they have collected samples that span before that and also after that and during that from two places, one in London and also in Denmark. And they were able to extract the DNA and identify genetic variations and look at how the genetic variations, the allele frequency have shifted. So they have like 200 samples, I think, and um, not so much, but sufficient to uh, you know do some focus on a specific set of genes they looked obviously looked at the immune related genes and they identified like few loci that had like drastically changed in allele frequency and the, the top one is in chromosome 5 where you know there's like two genes erop1 and erop2 that is involved in the antigen presentation process you know so like the allele on the erop2 it's kind of it's a splicing allele and it's Thirty percentage frequency has shifted just after you know the plague to seventy percentage. So it's like you know the the the, the black death has uh, uh, eradicated fifty percentage of the European population, right? So such a drastic change in allele frequency. It's, 
it's jaw dropping. I mean, it's never seen before. I think that's the biggest story. And the other thing is like always this collection come with the trade off. So the protection that the same allele that protected the individuals from the black death is also putting these individuals at increased risk for autoimmune diseases that we know from today's GWAS studies and everything like uh, rheumatoid arthritis or you know different uh, kind of uh, uh, ulcerative colitis or a lot of autoimmune diseases. So yeah, I think it's one of the biggest stories of 2021. Yeah. People really went crazy. This it, like Twitter was crazy when the it blew. It blew my so. mind reading it. It really did. Like you said, it was essentially carriers of the gene were significantly more likely to survive the Black Plague, right? And uh, and like you said, that has knock on effects hundreds of years later in some of the diseases like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis that are at much. Yeah, that that one, uh, I think it's a great choice. That one blew my mind reading it that um, the technology has gotten so good as well that we can do ancient DNA samples like that at a reasonable yeah. cost from a and thousand years ago. It also fit with the, the Nobel Prize theme, right? So just found the power yes. of the ancient DNA. So. <laughs> yeah. And now the second one on your list, I'm glad you chose it. I know, I know a couple of the authors on this, and I and I, yes. I I'm obviously biased, <laughs> but I think it I think it's really great. So yeah, so there's like two fascinating papers came from Mattel's group. Uh, your past supervisor, right? So your PhD supervisor. So so I was like a bit uh, in the tie to choose which one, but I think this kind of this the main more. I find it like more uh, interesting, particularly for going into the molecular mechanism. Here, the authors actually looked into the uh, de novo mutations in the, you know, the decipher cohort and also in the genomic England cohort. And they kind of looked into this, like what all the factors that affect the germline mutation rate. So the number of de novo mutations in an individual. So this comes from the mutation in the germline, the sperm and the ovum from the parents. On average, you know, we know like 70 to 90 mutations, uh, new mutations arise every generation. So he, they looked at the distribution and, you know, there are some few outliers. Like I think they looked at 20,000 trios and there are 12 individuals. They have really like more than expected, you know, mutations, hyper mutated genome. Some are like really crazy, like 400. I think the the, the highest number they observed is like more than 400, you know, mutations. And we know that the most important factor that affects this, you know, mutation rate is parental age and particularly for this age. And this explains, you know, about 90% of the variation. And uh, but it, uh, it seems that it probably just little less than that based on this study. But here they are looking at other causes of this variation, particularly on the outliers. And when you look at these outliers and just study why they have so many genome mutations in the genome, they found that at least, you know, for a couple of these individuals are born to parents who had a genetic lab, you know, mutation in DNA repair gene, you know, the very, that the gene that, that governed the very process to prevent, you know, uh, this kind of mutations to passing on to the next generation. Right, so a lot of these new mutations arise because of the replication error, and this one of the individual father has zero dermopigmentosum. It's a very well known autosome, a recessive condition because of this DNA repair gene. And they also found like some of the individual's parents had chemotherapy just before the conception. And uh, so these are like outlier, the rare causes of this uh, de novo mutations. And 
it's it, it's really if you think about it it's really amazing in a, such a small sample they were able to precisely identify the cause of the such a increased denormitation in that and paint a picture of the causes of this denormitation and um, I, I think like this 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 line of research is going to pick up there's like one preprint that came up like two few days ago they looked into the polygenic contribution of this denormitation mutation rate and tried to look into the biology by using this way uh, result they're looking into the biology of the denormitation mutation rate i think like this is like the sample size will increase given you know a lot of biobanks and sequencing efforts are happening and uh, I'm at least particularly excited about this line of research, how this is going to progress in the upcoming years. Yeah, I, I think it's also a uh, great exemplar of how useful linked genetic and clinical data is, because a lot of this would have been really difficult to tease out without knowing the parents, one of the parents had chemotherapy or the clinical seroderma pigmentosa that you mentioned. Um, I think it's also an interesting, just fundamental view of biology that if a, the typical genome has only, you know, 50 or 75 mutations, and then you have someone who has yeah. 400. Why, why is that? And what it, that has huge impacts on disease risk so for their children and so on. Yeah. So why I was like, even, you know, like it, it, it attracted my interest is this is kind of same thing that we do day to day. We are trying to identify large effects rare variants affecting trait. Basically, we are looking at the outlier individuals and what is pushing them to the, you know, like to the end of the frequency spectrum distribution, right? And uh, so it's very, it's, it's very sim same as here, but here the sample size is too low. If you are actually doing an X was or anything, you will not be able to find it. But just zooming into it and looking at an individual, so it's a different way, you know, like this is very important because I work in the psychiatric field, neurodevelopmental field. Often we don't have enough power to identify, you know, like statistical fault identifier association. So you need to have more, more than, you know, like looking at the p-values or anything. You need more intuition, understanding to identify such outliers and, you know, guess the causes and things like that. So uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of reflected on what I did and just, you know, mutation, considering it as, as a phenotype itself was like, I find it very, very interesting. So yeah, completely agree. The third one on your list is very hot off the presses, only a couple of days <laughs> old, right? Tell tell yes, us about that still, one. What still, the, <laughs> still the th thread is running, <laughs> getting tweeted, retweeted. So I just posted the thread like yesterday night. So I was actually trying to prepare for this podcast. Sometimes findings like this are so, so interesting that you couldn't resist just ignoring everything. It's also like my... <laughs> my trait, I guess. So I just put everything aside and sat for an hour and <laughs> wrote the story in the Twitter, even though I had so many other things to do. I think it's definitely a fantastic study. So, so what was happening in this in the study is they have identified the first human case of a monogenic form of obesity that is caused due to a mutation in a gene called ASIP. So it's an agouti signaling protein. And it is involved in this melanocotton, you know, signaling pathway that is the major one response, you know, genes in that pathways that are ma mainly causing this monogenic forms of obesity. So the most fascinating thing about this study is like the very first knowledge of this, you know, protein comes like 30 years ago 
based on a lab animal model it's called agouti mice it's a you know it's a, mainly this gene is involved in determines the coloring of its skin and the fur and so this mice had this mutation that kind of made this gene to be expressed throughout the body so it's supposed to be expressed only in some specific tissues mainly in the skin where its role and this mutation causes this gene to express throughout the body and also in the hypothalamus and it starts to you know disturb the appetite center and the mice gets fat hyper gets hyperphagia and become fat and so it's i guess it's a very popular mice it's been in the used for a lot of trade research so far but people have been like searching for any kind of human evidence genetic evidence for this gene for probably this 30 years but nothing has been found and this is the first time they are encountering the human case and uh, like the features are almost similar you know near phenocopy of the mice the they, they this was a child girl child who have severe obesity and red hair and you know all the other complications of this obesity diabetes and uh, steatohepatitis everything and she has, so they this is part of the routine clinical work they try to look into the genes that are known to cause monogenic forms of obesity but they did not find any mutation and this girl underwent a gastric gastrectomy surgery for the you know extreme obesity and so they collected adipose tissue sample and then they looked into the gene expression transcriptomic profile comparing with the control tissue that it is so you don't you know you don't even need any kind of statistics to look at it as one gene that's extremely high in express like several hundred folds and what is that gene that's a very gene that we know you know causes obesity in this agouti mice so they went back to the whole genome sequencing data and looked at the reads and they can see there is a tandem duplication that switched the promoter of this asip gene with the promoter of a nearby gene it and that gene is an ubiquitous gene it is expressed throughout the body mm-hmm. now this this gene asip is under the promoter of this it gene so now it is getting transcribed in every cell of the girl's body right so throughout the body and including the hypothalamic neurons and so this asip is a natu- it's an antagonist for two risk melanocortin receptors mc1r and mc for our in the skin it binds with the mc1r to create this uh, secrete pure melanin to cause this red skin and also red hair and also in the brain it it antagonizes the mc4r and which results in a very increased appetite and so the patient overeats and then they become obese and so it's amazing they looked they went back to a childhood obesity cohort and tried to see if there are any other patients with the same mutation and they found four patients with the mutation the odds of looking at it yeah. it's like the same mutation in four patients and three girls one boy the three girls had the very similar phenotype red hair hyperphagia extreme obesity it's actually it's mind blowing right so this these are the findings i really like in the human genetics and there is like a happy ending to it so there is a known fda fda approved drug mc4 agonist that can use it to and you know neutralize this antagonistic right. effect of this overexpressed gene and so it's a great Amazing. paper and i really loved it so i guess people also loving it so far from what i seen the twitter yes, i'm so. seeing i'm it'll get triple digit retweets for sure <laughs> and just for everybody listening out we'll add the links to all these papers into the notes in the show so if you want to go and check them out and we'll link to dr vera's twitter so you can read the threads as well your second major theme milestone achievements maybe you could talk through the first yeah, enormous sure. gwas study 
So this is the most important, the milestone achievements. I choose three things. And the first one is it's one of the biggest finding when you narrow down the field to GWAS. You know, if you ask me what is the biggest finding in the GWAS field, then I would definitely choose this. So there's GWAS of height in a sample size of 5.4 million. And what is special about this GWAS? It's a saturated GWAS, meaning so at this 5.4 sample, we have found everything that you can find, all the genes and the variants that you can find, you know, for that associated with height. So it's, we have reached the saturation. So in the past, we always believe that, you know, like it is impossible to reach the state because it's going to be like infinite the sample size required to completely, you know, get all the genome-wide significant variants, the, you know, the significant variants to explain the full height variation, right? So that you that is explained by the whole genome. So, so that's a remarkable moment, right? So height is a prototype variant. So, so the major finding here is at this sample size, they have this, like the SNP heritability, we say it's the heritability is the variation of the phenotype explained by the SNPs, the, the common variants, and it is around 50%. So you can estimate it even if you don't have any significant you know, genetic variants using the statistical method. And the twin heritability of height is around 70 to 80 percentage. And of this 50 percentage, SNP heritability. But the, so far, the genome-wide significant variants explain, you know, like only a small portion of this full SNP heritability. And this is one of the gaps that we are trying to fill in as we increase the sample size. And so in this GWAS, that gap is filled. So now we are reached completely to that. And so the other insights from this, you know, studies, there are so, so many important insights. Like when you have such a large sample size, you can go back and see what are the sample sizes you need required to, you know, to get different kind of insights from the data. For example, if I want to identify genes or pathways, right, do I need 5.4 million samples? No, you don't need. So, so they give an estimate of different sample sizes at which you reach saturation for different kinds of results. So, for example, you reach saturation for pathways, like the, all the height-related pathways, or identify pathways in 250,000 samples. So you are not going to find any new pathways beyond that sample size. If you are interested in identifying all the height-related genes, particularly that cause, you know, Mendelian forms or forms of height problems, then, you know, at 1.2 million size, 2 million, you reach the saturation. Beyond that, you're not going to find. And if it's the same, but when it comes to the variance, individual variance, you reach a 5.4 million sample. And another important thing is this variance, like they identify 14,000 variants in total, they are not distributed throughout the genome as a lot of people expected of, you know, under this omnigenic hypothesis, but they are, ex they are distributed only in 21% of the genome. So when we talk about polygenic trait, we think that genes throughout the genome, everything at some point in the future, you will be like finding every gene, every variant in the genome to show a significant p-value. And that is one of the common criticisms you know, that this is going. So at some point, you will end up finding all the gene, but that's not the case. So here they clearly show that it's only the part of the genome. And, you know, like you, you start to find more and more variants only in the gene that is like more related to the height. So they have this kind of cool plot where they show different full variants associated, you know, with height at the same locus. And there is one specific locus called near a gene ACAN, which is 
one of the most important locus where 25 independent local locus are identified. I think this is one of this is the moment like people were trying to you know accomplish since like past probably 10 15 years and it's a huge success and a motivation for the field and so yeah definitely it's one of the important achievement milestone in the 2022 i feel like i need to go back and reread it because to be honest when i first saw this i thought oh it's another very large hype she was i think exactly probably a lot of people... exactly yeah so a lot of people thought that it's not like there are so many million Samples GWAS has come this year, but nothing like this. This is very important. This is this marks a milestone in in our right. GWAS journey. So, so, <laughs> so I guess is it the this is almost the end to a quest in some ways because one of the big criticisms of genome wide association studies in general is like where does it end? We're just going to sequence more and more yeah, people, so, but yeah, this yeah th- this is sort of showing at a at a certain point you found almost everything there is to be found, and you can still start to dive into other biological questions and so on. I got to mention one unimportant thing. I think it's very important to mention that. So here still there is one more thing to be, you know, accomplished as well. It's like, even though you have reached the complete saturation, still the, it is not, it is only in the European sample, right? So it just doesn't apply to the non-European sample, particularly for, you know, the using the variance to predict the trait, the polygenic score. So polygenic score explains only you know a part of this variance in the non-European sample, and this is completely this is because you don't have that many training samples from the other populations. So definitely we need to. So this kind of more, more emphasizes the importance of studying non-European population. Yeah. So that is one of the things. So when I say we have found everything we have found, so it's one applied to European sample. I want yeah. to emphasize that here. So. Yeah, I think that's that's very important to emphasize. And also, I think the point you made stands, which is that this is about showing a general framework for knowing when you've reached saturation in any population or disease, right? And then you could apply that thinking or approach. Exactly. Anywhere. Yeah. So ne- next on your list is about the UK Biobank, which yeah, is an so, evergreen source of, of new and so, exciting tweet yeah. threads for you. The other biggest story is the whole genome sequencing. So it's kind of overlaps with last year and this year. I think the preprint was like last year and it, the paper published this year, I guess. So so here, you know, so the biggest story of last year was the exome sequencing. So when paper published from Regentron and also from other companies like AstraZeneca that, you know, the first time we were able to look at the uh, rare variant association at scale, like 450,000 individuals. And so this year we are looking, we are going beyond the exomes and we are looking at the full genomes. And there was always this question of, you know, people always focus on exomes and that's the major focus for all the companies. So what is the benefit of looking beyond the exomes? So what are, you know, what we are going to learn new that we haven't learned through exomes? I think so there was this paper from the Decode flagship paper, the main paper, like reporting about this data. I think it's a great paper. They show a lot of interesting findings that probably you will be able to find only using whole genomes. So, so the very first thing is, you know, when we say exomes, it seems it's not truly like when we do exome sequencing, we are not really capturing all the, you know, region of the coding region of the genome. There are like a lot of things that we are missing. One of the things is like the regions of the coding regions that are transcribed but not translated. The untranslated regions, they have very important post-transcriptional regulatory roles. And so they identified a lot of associations in that 
So then other thing is you can get in, you can find structural variants. So the, you, it's very difficult to identify them using exome sequencing. So that is one of the excitation like for the structural variants. I think they have like very a lot of beautiful examples for that. And so many other insights and also imputation panels. So you have a very high resolution of the variance. And so they have built imputation panel using which you can accurately impute variants, common variants from the genotyping array data. And here, particularly, they are the so decode scientists are really the, you know, the experts in this area. So they are the one who first actually successfully you know, employed this imputation approach. So to identify variants all the way to down to very rare allele frequency in Icelandic population, because they have this unique genetic structure. So they were able to do that. So they have only whole genome sequenced part of the population use that they kind of apply to that. So, so they are an expert in this and they have really showed off their skills in the UK Biobank. And yeah, so many other, you know, great findings. But the real question is, we will come back to this when we talk about what we expect in the 2023, like how this data is going to be used and what are the challenges? You know, we'll come back to it later. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say most of the biobanks, well, I don't know. I'll ask this to you because I think people have different opinions on this. I hear many people say, actually, I'm going to keep doing exomes for a very long time because they cost, you know, (laughs) they don't cost very much at scale still compared to genomes, but you don't know what you don't know. Do you have an opinion on whether everyone's going to go the direction of UK Biobank and it's going to be genomes all the way? Or Yeah, I think there's still the jury is out. So I remember the first time the discussion happened in 2000, like last previous year ASHE, they were first time announcing about the whole genomes. And, you know, there was this one presentation from, from a scientist, I forgot, is from industry scientists who, who gave an initial, you know, look into the what to expect. And they did a genetic associations with all the traits possible in the UK Biobank. And they found so many associations. Then after that, when they tried to look into what are the associations that are independent of, you know, known GWAS loci? They did this conditional analysis to remove all the variants that we already know through the GWAS. Almost everything is gone. So there's very few is left. So that's one of the things, right? So we have been doing GWAS for a long time. And what is whole genome going to bring beyond what we have learned using denotyping array and imputation? I think it's still not clear. I think one of the challenges there would be to what are the other regulatory annotations that we'll have to interpret them. So yeah, discuss a little more on this when we look at the 2023. Yeah, definitely. The next one on your list is another UK biobank, which I am definitely with you on this, proteomics at scale and Olink in particular. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I think the other biggest, you know, it's always, I think most of the biggest stories always stem from UK biobank. They are the pioneers and all of this. So they, it has been a huge success with UK Biobank industry collaboration in terms of whole exome sequencing and uh, also whole genome sequencing, right? So, and the next biggest data, at least, you know, from the genomic side, I think it's this proteomics that is based on a collaboration between UK Biobank and so many former partners. And they have generated a data of proteomics protein expression in the blood for 1,500 proteins at the first phase for 50,000 participants. So that is like a very big data set. So we usually, when we interpret, you know, genome-wide association loci, one of the very common thing we do is go back to and look at whether if this variant affect the gene expression. You know, we look at the 
GTEx database as a database to see the you know EQTLs. But it, some often people say it's more important to also look into the protein because from so probably things that you look at the M, uh, happening at the mRNA, but probably will not be reflecting protein. But we never had a large database, and people started building it. The largest one was from Decode, I think thirty five thousand. That was for like published a, a year ago. It's a fantastic paper, and now we are having like. 50,000 from the UK Biobank. If you combine Decode and UK Biobank, it's like 80,000. That's, you know, extremely big data set and so many in possibilities and research can stem out of this data. So we had this preprint probably published in the next year. So they have did some preliminary analysis to see what are the things you can do with this kind of data set. So, so the very first thing is, you know, so protein represents a molecular trait that is very close to the DNA. So now you really have like extremely many folds more power to identify these genetic associations. And so this can help in refining your Mendelian randomization analysis to even for drug targets or epidemiological questions. And you can use this variant associations with the protein to identify the uh, you know pathogenicity of the variant. So you might be familiar with this uh, massively parallel reporter assay, right? So where they use CRISPR to edit every possible basis in a gene and make all these possible variants and look at the some you know gene expression or the cell culture uh, multiplication, you know, like uh, survival assay, etc. So. This is in a way kind of an MPRA, except that, you know, we have already the fully saturated, right? So list of all the lot of variants and here the readouts is the protein. So it's very similar to MPRA, but it's scaled for like we are having for right. 50,000, right? So this is going to really refine all our GWAS findings and findings. And particularly, I think Decode has like a very special uh, attachment to PQTLs and proteomics. So if you look at Carry stock, I've been listening for like few of four or five of Carry stock, and every time he goes somewhere, somehow goes into this proteomics data, multiomics data. And uh, recently also, Harry gave a talk, fantastic talk in the ASG, the Drift Symposium that uh, Reach and Ron organized. And he talked about one of the special use of this proteomics is to risk prediction, proteomics risk score. And so he said this kind of captures a different dimension than what genetic risk score. So we know polygenic risk score to identify disease risk or disease progression and proteomics risk score kind of is not same as genetic risk score. It captures a different dimension and probably these two will complement well. I think a lot of people are working on it. So there is like endless possibilities and we will be like seeing so many papers in next year using this data, at least first from the industry side perspective. Yeah, it's I think. To me, what's interesting about it as well is how just the sheer complexity of the number of time points and disease states and things like that you could test. Genetics is special yeah. in that you only need to do it once, but proteomics is special in that it tells you what's happening at a moment in time in a particular cell. And so there are two very different ends of the spectrum. You only need to genome sequence people once, but you could do proteomics every second of the day if you wanted to. And it made it probably wouldn't tell you anything at that resolution, but you could do it every day and in every different tissue. And you'd probably learn a lot that way. So how we're going to wrestle with this question of prioritizing how we spend our scarce resources to build these kind of yeah. resources what, is what, an interesting one. One downside is that, you know, like we are looking at the blood proteins. And so you know, like it's useful for a lot of secreted proteins and, you know, like diseases related, metabolic diseases. But when it comes to, you know, 
disease domains that I'm interested in, like neurological diseases, yes. psychiatric diseases. So still, you know, this we, we have looked into that, you know, it's not like clear how much this is going to be useful for that. But yeah, so I mean, apart from that, but I think it has so many potential for like other disease domains. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is maybe a good segue into the third bucket, because a lot of what we've talked to is centered around primarily European ancestry populations. So maybe you could talk yes, to some so, of the advances here. Yeah, I think this is the, even if it is the last theme, it is the most important theme. I think we should always look back into this specific theme. So I choose three points to highlight here. So the first one is the data set The we, now we have the first a large scale rare variant exome data set for a non-European population, Latin American population. And this is an effort from scientists in Mexico and also scientists in Oxford and also Regendron, a collaboration with Regendron. So the sequencing happened in Regendron, but you know, so this is like 150,000 individuals from Mexico. So I think this is one of the important milestones in, in the human genetics where finally we are, you know, focus, we are having such large data sets for non-European population as well. And the preprint describing, you know, the initial analysis has been posted this year and probably it will be published sometime next year. And uh, so this will be like people probably will use this in scientists in Mexico and as well as other researchers will be like collaborating in Oxford and probably use it for long. And we'll be learning more about the genetics of Latin American population. And also this will reduce this, you know, like underrepresentation of Latin American population in the human genetic studies. So some of the major findings here is one, one important thing that was like really amazing is that how they actually recruited these samples. So this samples like was being recruited for 20 years since I think like 2000 around. And the scientists, they've been like visiting house to house and collecting the wow. samples. So can you imagine they just went to 100,000 100, houses to collect this 150,000 sample? That is like such a huge effort and we should, you know, appreciate it, I think so. And uh, it's a big effort to invest in this, right? So, uh, so one of the major thing about this is this is a population or admixed population that is people have like, different proportions of ancestry because of this admixture events between Europeans and Africans and Native Americans. And uh, so this is a very special population and people, uh, so now we are starting to, you know, realize about the more used case of this population. So there are so many ways you can look, you know, so they can improve the statistical power for a lot of variants, for example, if that is fixed in, you know, like the homologous uh, original population, for example, if there is a variant that is present in everyone in Africa, but there's no one in European, right? So you will not have power either in African population or European population to do study. But if you look into admixed American population, that will be like intermediate frequency. So this gives a more power. But it also like when you have the same individual harboring different proportions of ancestry, you can actually remove the environmental effects and look at genetic effects. So it's always very challenging to compare genetic effects between the population, right? So if I have a genetic variant or set of variants affecting a trait, and I cannot simply compare an European with African population and just compare the genetic effects because there are so many other factors we have to look into. But if this both dances come from the same individual, mm -hmm. so then basically you are like, it's like a within 
family kind of design, right? So you remove all the founders. So that is one of the exciting, yeah, you know, progress in statistics to statistical methods to, I think there is a paper from Bogdan's lab from UCLA who actually looked into. So one of the problem with the PRS is that the PRS effect sizes are, are different across the ancestry. So what are the reasons for this different effect sizes? And uh, you cannot tell that by just comparing individuals from different ancestry, but you can actually, you know, look at the admixed individuals and calculate PRS only for an African ancestry proportion of the genome and portion of the genome and European portion of the genome and compare the effect sizes. You can actually capture the what is the reason. So there are different ways you can use it. So I think this data set will be like a lot of great great discoveries and findings will be like coming out and following years from this data set. Yeah, that's tremendous. Oh, that's the first one. Okay, so we have like, I have two more ones. So polygenic risk score. So this has been getting more and more, you know, attention and people are starting to use it. And I think already started entering clinic, but still we haven't solved the problem of the poor portability of polygenic risk score across different ancestors. While that is being the case, then... I think like there are studies that coming up to show, to bring out other challenges that we should be aware of when we actually implement the polygenic score prediction in clinical practice. So two of the, this, I, I think it's like, I found it very important. Like one is that there is a study that was published in medicine, I think early this year from the, based on the Ugandan genomic resource from the African scientists. So they show that if you construct a polygenic risk score based on European population and then predict the trait in the, you know, in the African population, so it's going to be poor that we know that, right? So you can improve that by in including African-American samples in your training sample. So this will improve the power, but we always put the whole African ancestry in a single bucket, right? So here they show that if you construct a polygenic risk score, even using an African-American training sample, the prediction can differ substantially between different African subcontinent ancestries. So they looked into the two set of individuals, one from the Ugandan region and the other from the Zulu region. And the, they used the polygenic risk score for, I think, LDL cholesterol. And so the polygenic risk score trained based on African-American training sample explain like eight percentage of variation in the Zulu population, but 0.02 percentage in Canadian population. Such a big difference, imagine. So we, I mean, it's great that you're able to show it and, you know, highlight when we talk about portability, we also have to go and look into the fine scale ancestry of within, you know, like we cannot just use African population as a single bucket and, you know, try to use use that as a category to study the portability issues in polygenic risk score. In very much in line with that, I think there is an, another paper that came out that showed there is also the same issue with admixed ancestry. So coming, you know, coming back to our previous point where we're talking about MCPs. So when we talk about portability issues, we always talk about this continental ancestry, European population, African population, South Asian population. There is this population of admixed in ancestry, right? So, so when you look into the polygenic prediction in the admixed individuals, even among them, if you separate them based on the proportion of their ancestry, if you have a polygenic score trained based on a European sample, it performs well only in individuals who have relatively more European ancestry in their genome than individuals who are relatively more African ancestry in the genome. And this is also an important issue we need to address. How are we going to make sure that the polygenic score 
will perform well in atmic ancestries, right? So we always focus on other this like homogeneous ancestries, and I, I think that's it's important. So as much as you know, we have studies that shows discoveries. I think it's also important that the studies that actually bring out these challenges for other scientists, so that they are aware of it, so they can try to work out solutions for it. And yeah, so that's the second one. And uh, the third one, I think it's probably a bit biased because I'm from India and I'm always like, one of my all time concern is that the poor representation of the Indian population, also South Asian population, the studies. So any studies that come out of India, is like a bit more excites me more. And uh, so there was one preprint that came out that showed the genetics of type 2 diabetes in the Indian population in comparison to European population. So my dad have type of diabetes my mom has so my dad has diabetic for 30 years and you know my mom also diabetic for 15 years so i know i'm going to be a diabetic very soon so because it's more on our it's a genetic risk and so being spent a clinical practice you know as a clinician in india i know the the high prevalence of type 2 diabetes and i have spent so many time you know so much time during when i was working as duty doctor treating patients with diabetic foot ulcer and everything yeah. so it has it's so common and you know like we have some studies but you know people haven't looked into this differences in the by you know like the genetics between indian population and the population i think this is the first time they are looking at it so one of the main, you know, like in finding when it comes to diabetes in India is that it is, has a very early age of onset. So people get a diabetes, starting to get diabetes more, more younger age, like less than 40 years. So, you know, and this is not the case in the European population. And what is the underlying genetics? They show that the heritability of the age of onset of type 2 diabetes is more in Indian population than in the European population. And so, and one other interesting thing is here, the, the derived of polygenic score using Indian population, South Asian population as a training sample. And they show it predicts very poorly in the European population, but it predicts very well in the Indian population. You know, we always hear about how European population-based polygenic score is performing poorly in other yeah. populations. So it was, it's refreshing to hear it for one, for a one. Reverse is right? also so, true. Yeah. <laughs> So what, the reverse do, is also true, right? Yes. So it's very important. Why do you think that, did the authors get into why why the heritability is greater? I, I don't know as much about the genetic ancestry of, of India as I probably should, but I would imagine it's also a highly admixed population as well. And you're not talking about one population, right? Yeah, There's a, that's correct. Yeah, we have North Indian population and South Indian population. So you can categorize them more as you, you know, go more deep into this ancestry structure. I think like dietary factor is one of the important and there is there's definitely evolutionary aspects to it. And uh, so, and one other problem here is that, you know, they looked into the sample and uh, pheno even phenotypically, they had a very big change. So average age of onset in the samples they studied from India is 40 years, but it was 60 years in the European sample. So just slightly due to probably, you know, selection, uh, ascertainment bias, but probably it is also the real difference. If you randomly sample individuals from South India or from the India and randomly sample from Europe, people with type diabetes and look at the mean difference in the age of onset, probably it will be more 
you know, higher in India because we know this from epidemiological studies. And probably this is because people are having variants that causing, you know, more stronger effects on the, you know, genetic, have stronger genetic risk on for type 2 diabetes. And we are just starting to, you know, look, see what is that. I mean, they, in the study, they identified the same loci. I don't know if you're aware of TCF7L2. It's one of the strongest type 2 diabetes risk locus identified very early in the GWAS timeline. And it's one of the most replicated finding. And they identified the same thing. So this, but they also see that there is like variance in the same locus, but seen only Indian population, but not in the European population. So, right. So even with the same gene that has the similar biology in Europe as well as in India, you have this, there are variants that probably you will see only in Indian population that is like having more, contributing more to the variation that discussed in India. And this is one of the problem with the polygenic risk score prediction, right? So our knowledge of the risk variants that are important to predict the trade come from the samples that we did GWAS, which is in the Europe. So we naturally miss some of the variants that are more important in the non-European context. And we don't give enough weight to those variants, right? So that, that's, uh, again, hitting the same problem here. So that's why it's important that we have to go and I didn't look at the genetic architecture in other population as well. So, yes. Well, thank you. This will wrap up our 2022 recap. We've gone through three themes, nine papers. I'll, I'm going to talk for a minute and give you a break because I've had you talking the whole time and then let you just take a quick breather <laughs> before we head into 2023. And I think we'll revisit a couple of these themes, but we both sat down and each highlighted two areas where we think it's worth watching, paying attention. There's something interesting going on. So I'm going to go first with two of mine and we're going to flip the script. So Vera, you can ask me any questions that you want. And if I don't know, I'll say so. And we can leave the audience to follow up with somebody who really does know. My my first one that I'm really excited about is the rise of whole genome sequencing in newborn screening. This, as many people may know, there is a form of universal genetic testing in many countries using a heel prick test mm -hmm. that tests for a very small number of genes that have very clear clinical benefit that if you pick it up early, you can do something about it. What we're talking about here is a step beyond that, which is to do whole genome sequencing on newborns. And with most of the programs, the focus is still on clinically actionable genes so that if you, if you find something, you can do something really important for the newborn, put them on a preventive therapy for a rare disease or, or, you know, or, or something like that. Some programs, I think, are thinking a little bit longer term, like what might you do with this in a predictive and preventive healthcare context. But why I think it's so exciting and important is there's been a couple programs that have gotten really significant funding now to do to do this at a very large scale. So in the UK, for example, there's been about 200 million pounds, which is about $250 million for whole genome sequencing in newborns. And why I think this is so important is that we touched on this earlier, but DNA sequencing is a very special form of medical test where you only have to do it once because your DNA doesn't change if, you're, if we're talking about the germline. And so there's definitely a path towards a future where everyone is sequenced as a newborn. And that basically folds into our healthcare record and decision-making system in some way so that the data can be used not just for early detection of very severe and rare diseases, but also towards some of the things we've just been discussing, like polygenic risk scores and prediction and prevention of disease. So I, and I think these kind of programs are also going to drive the costs further and further down. And in a way, it's going to kind of make 
genetics disappear into the background a little bit where eventually everybody will be sequenced and it maybe won't be so special anymore. But I think it's going to push us towards this personalized medicine or precision medicine, call it whichever you'd like, future where by default, everybody has the option to have their healthcare be genetically guided, which I think is really exciting versus today where it's, as, as we've talked about, pretty spread out whether you get genetic testing or not is really highly dependent on geography and disease state and so on. So what do you think yeah. about that? And what questions do you have on that? So I'm not very familiar with this in this initiative, but I was just wondering if this is like a test that will be given to everyone who is born or is just in a hospital setting? How, what is the case actually? So yeah, it, no, it's a really good question. So this is a pilot that has been, it's being run by Genomics England and the NHS, and they've been working on it for a really long time. Actually, I, we interviewed to chair Genomics England on one of the previous podcast episodes, and she gave a really clear overview of what's in scope and what's out of scope. And they've been doing a lot of work around making sure you know, the questions and concerns of parents and, you know, and other stakeholders are heard. What's really different about this is I believe they do intend to sequence all comers. So it will not be just critically ill infants, for example, which is a number of programs that do rapid whole genomes for critically yeah. ill, which of course totally makes sense. But I think the problem that this is solving is those cases where if you'd known what the genetics was before the child becomes critically ill, then it saves everybody a huge amount of heartache and concern. So the flip side of that is you're going to test a lot of people who the result comes back negative in the sense that it's a very positive experience where you've been told you we've tested you and haven't found anything, but a small fraction of babies or parents are going to get results that say, you know, hopefully we found something that if we hadn't found it would become a disaster in a couple of weeks or months or years. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's definitely, it's being shown that whole genome sequencing has a great value in a hospital setting, particularly, you know, to identify diagnosis or to rule out diagnosis. That's also an important case. And I think even tweeted about a clinical trial experimented in a pediatric ICU unit where they clearly found a great value of saving cost and, you know, and leading to a timely treatment intervention. But when it when you come to a population level, right, so what we do with this inborn errors of metabolism screening using youth records and that's being done, you know, for every child born, like in Scandinavian countries and also other countries, like we have this big biobank using whole genome sequencing in that setting. And I think it's still probably that, you know, I, I'm not really sure, like how many of the parents want to learn about the genetic risk of a perfectly healthy child. I mean, yeah. so let me ask you if the hospital offered a whole genome sequencing for your kid, you would have accepted it, you would want to do it or, you know, given yeah. that there is no no concern, no issue with the health of your kid. So, I, I personally would, okay. but I'm 100% with you that I actually think one of the interesting things that's going to be learned through this program is who who does opt in, who does opt out and why. Yeah. Because there's plenty of good reasons not to as well. I personally would, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of arguments not to. Yeah. And I think the other problem, I don't know, maybe they, it's one of the common things people bring up when you talk about this, you know, offering whole genome sequencing as like a general health checkup, you know, like doing it. If this information, how this is like in problematic in terms of insurance, right? I mean, if this information is, if the insurance company have information on this genetic risk and things like that, so then 
that's going to change the scenario, right? If they know beforehand what are the issues that we, <laughs> that the child yes. will have in the future and things like that. So yeah, and, how and are this, they going to solve about it? So this is I'll use this as one way to segue into my second point as well because I think it's really relevant here. And in the UK, the protections are a lot stronger than in the okay. US. They're not perfect though. So for example, my I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that you still need to disclose information about Huntington's disease risk, for example, to insurers. So it's not that in the UK, insurers can't do anything. And in the US, you know, in the US, as many people know, life insurance is able to ask about genetic risk, but health insurance, in my understanding, is typically not. But mm. the, you know, so there's no free ticket, but the UK protections are a little bit better. I, I don't know with the particular program how they're planning to handle it, but I think this is going to be a really key aspect of the upfront counseling and discussion with parents of what, you know, what are the risks of taking part? One of those is finding out something that is going to massively impact it. And the, I'll give you a chance to respond to this, but the next topic that I'm going to talk about is pre-symptomatic treatment for very significant and progressive genetic diseases like ALS or Alzheimer's. And I think this is equally important there where if you have a family member who has a, if your family member has ALS, a, a typically rapidly progressive neurodegenerative disease and you and they get genetically tested and they have a genetic form and then you're deciding whether you want to get genetically tested to see if you carry it you have the same you know major question to consider of a do you want to know and under what circumstances and also in the u.s in particular what are the implications of getting a test that says you have a very high likelihood of getting a very significant disease but uh, and you haven't had a chance to take out life insurance or other yeah so I mean, it's very exciting initiative so it's just my, you know, like when we evaluate the value of whole genome sequencing in a clinical setting, so the, tree, the study that I tweeted, you know, like a couple of days ago, they look into how much money you save, how much of the disease burden you reduce, you know. So it's like you have this kind of metrics to evaluate the outcome, yeah. right? So in terms of economy and also in terms of disease burden and everything. I am not sure how, I mean, I would really love to, know what will be the impact of this you know i think we can only know if we implement yes. it so so definitely that's one of the thing to see and how it's like impacting the country's economy and thing in a large scale so yeah and you're so right about the health economics i think broadly my prediction of it would be you know 95 plus percent of parents won't have anything i mean i'll even say probably 99 percent won't have anything actionable and their costs will be a couple thousand pounds to the healthcare system all in for sequencing, counseling, processing. And then there's going to be 1% where the testing is hopefully going to help avoid something catastrophic. And what I don't know is how much that how much mm. does that 1% cost? Somebody will be working hard to run these numbers, I think, to figure out, do we want to do this at scale? It, you know, and you, one of the, I guess, pet peeves that I have with these systems in general is that the health economic assessments often don't encompass some of the non-economic impacts, like what does saving one in a hundred families from having a, or one in 500 or whatever it ends up being from having a traumatic first six months of life. But that's also hard to put a, yeah. a number on, but we have to, because the health system has to weigh it up against something like genome sequencing and 50-year-olds to do cardiac PRS or something like that and compare the cost benefit. Yeah, so 
I think it's great. So it's really interesting to see how this pan out in the future. So. Yeah. And my second one, which actually related to that last point is we've seen a couple drug approvals this year in ALS, in Alzheimer's. They don't appear to be silver bullets. And there's a lot of discussion around how well they work and side effects and so on. But one of the things that has seemed to emerge from both the trial and pre-clinical data is that early treatment in neurodegenerative disease with some of these recently approved compounds may be more effective than treating people who are already very advanced with disease. And why I think this is potentially really interesting is, is, you know, for kind of obvious reasons, if we can intervene before we get into severe neurodegeneration, then that's a great thing. But it also opens some really challenging questions about, you know, like the one we just covered. If you have a family member who has Alzheimer's and it's ApoE4 or a family member who has ALS and it's SOD1 or one of the other genetic variants. And you're going through the discussion of A, whether you get tested, but B, if you are tested and you're 25 years old carrying the, how do we design trials that test, you know, that test this hypothesis that administering a drug to an otherwise healthy, but pre-symptomatic population might work. And I am excited for that because if it works, it'll be amazing, but it's also a, it's a big challenge to think through. Yeah, I think definitely. So there's a lot of hype about the reason for the Alzheimer's, right? So I just remember seeing the one of the nature news and views about Alzheimer's thing. So so one of the challenge, I guess, like people feel that the reason why all these drugs targeting the amyloid beta pathway is failing is that you know, we are treat we are doing the trials at a very late stage, right? So we need to start early, but also like define early yeah. we do, it's like very difficult right so we don't have proper biomarkers or that kind of you know accurately tell you okay this is the critical point you have to make some intervention before this we don't know that and to evaluate the improvements we don't have any good way to evaluate how is the drug is working apart from you know measuring the beta amyloid plagues but we know that doesn't correlate well with the you know like the disease outcomes and yeah, so, so many challenges. I think like one of the solutions they offer is like what you said. So we need to try the trials with early onset cases. So either you can do it in two ways. One is just focus on monogenic conditions or, you know, con- caused by known mutation like AP mutation or and identify carriers of this mutation and follow up them from the very early stage, you know, early age. Yes, and enroll them in the trials. And again, it's there is a problem with putting half of them in the placebo drink, right? So it's not fair, right? So they have this kind of a design where we switch over the groups at some point, and then yeah. So I think they're trying out a lot of different ways. And so one is monogenic condition, the other one is like clinically identifying early onset cases, like even before cognitive impairment, you, you know, using PET scan to identify the amyloid plagues and you know earlier signs and then enrolling them. So yeah, definitely, I think that's the next thing to do. And yeah, it's really, if it works, then, you know, that's really great. But yeah. it's just, yeah, a lot of risks are involved in that. And we have to think about the patients. And Yes. Yeah. And maybe this is a good segue to one of yours, which is the coming back to the proteomics, because it's something you just said. I think, you know, genetics is a very imperfect predictor of something like Alzheimer's disease risk, but it may be that getting rich proteomic data could help to close the loop to find a 
protein-based risk score, for example, that is a lot more predictive of onset than you know, the genetics FOE4 might tell you're gonna you're more likely to get it eventually, but something that's a nearer to a real-time biomarker, I think, is absolutely what we need. So maybe you can talk about that and what you're excited about for 2023. Yeah, I think you just reminded me of one of the most, you know, like interesting use case for this. I think the compelling finding comes from Decode paper, who they published on 35,000-based PQTL paper. So one of the use, one of the way you can use it to use the proteomics data is to identify biomarkers that can inform about, you know, disease progression, particularly when you are evaluating a drug, whether, you know, it can tell you if the drug worked or not. So they have, you know, they use this Mendelian randomization to identify. So that when you do association between the protein levels and disease, both, you know, you find two types of associations, right? One where the disease is like leading to the change in the protein level, and the other one is the protein it's being causal to the disease. So we always focus on, you know, get fixated on, you know, looking at only the causal associations and ignore the other group of associations. But actually the other group of associations is, might be also equally important because they might tell you, you know, when you're trying to evaluate some drugs that they can give you an unbiased, you know, marker or a tool to identify. So they, yeah. I think they have an example for psoriasis where is a biomarker DFBE1, some protein in the skin, you know, so it's clearly a marker for psoriasis disease and it's not, it doesn't have any causal association. It's very clear, very beautiful example for this Mendelian randomization. And you can use that to, you know, when you're treating, trying out some drugs that are looking at the outcome, then you can use that as a marker probably. And I think they also have some other have example for osteoarthritis. So there are like, that's one of the exciting use cases. We'll be looking, seeing a lot of these examples in the upcoming years where different, for different diseases where this, you know, can be useful. So that is like individual proteins, but you can also use a, like a polygenic risk or like approach combining proteomics, all the protein associations and, you know, training machine, using machine learning models to train scores and use that to monitor the progression. That is another area where probably useful, probably might you'd be useful in this context, like in the clinical trials context. Yeah, completely agree. Wrap us up here. And I think this will be probably one of our longest episodes yet, which is good because we're taking a little break over the holiday period. So people can chop this up into two or three and listen to it as they're working off their holiday meals. Yeah. So we just touched a little bit on proteomics. Maybe we can start with that one and Olink in particular. So like I mentioned to you before, so when I, when we think about what to look forward in the future. So I kind of I can you know divide into two. One is that the 2023, what I would expect to come out in 2023, what I would look forward. And then what I would be like looking forward in a longer, little bit longer scale, like probably five years, 10 years. So because one year is nothing. So most of the studies that I would expect to come in 2023 already in the preprint in the biography this year. So so let, if we focus on 2023, I think two things that I'm more excited. One is in what are the ways people are going to use the whole genome sequencing data from the UK Biobank. And the other one is in how people are going to use the proteomics data. So the I think the whole genome sequence data has already been made available for everyone, all the researchers. So there are so many use cases like, you know, people are going to use it to interpret their GWAS associations. They might be able to have better find resolution at some of the GWAS locus. So one of the important 
problem, you know, challenge in interpreting GWAS studies to identify the causal genes of the GWAS locus. So the whole genome sequencing resolution might be able to help with that. And then to identify, I think most excited people are more excited about using whole genome sequencing is to finally to go and look into the non-coding variant associations, right? So we mainly focus on the coding variant associations. And so we know rare variants have very large effect sizes. There is also non-coding variants which can have very large effect sizes, particularly non-coding variants in the regulated regions. I think the decode paper beautifully show it, right? So we always know that exons are highly, you know, like under constraint, right? So they, you, they, you see less number of mutations than what you would expect. And, but this is also true for some of the non-coding regions. And this level of constraints are sometimes even higher than what you see for exons. So that means what happens when you have a mutation in this region where you don't see any mutation at all, right? So probably it will have a very big effect. And we are actually, we are just scratching the surface of such associations. And that is one of the most exciting, you know, discoveries we will see. But one of the challenges is that, you know, we will be like more restricted to traditional annotations like promoter, enhancer, you know, around the gene region. But we also need more fine annotations like tissue-specific annotation, developmental stage-specific annotation to know where to look at the whole genome sequence. And that is one of the challenge. And so I guess like people probably will be al- probably already working on it because it's, I always say this one of the big idea for if you're trying to start a company or anything, if you're if you want to make use of all the UK biobank data, but also you have something in-house that can complement it. One exciting area is to build resources for this kind of like regulatory annotations and things like that. It will be like extremely useful to capture a lot of low-hanging fruits using this like 500,000 people whole genome sequences coming up in these years. So that is one other area. And polygenic risk score and then laws of evolutionary-based analysis and Decode has created a beautiful imputation panel. And this is going to be very useful for a lot of non-Indian, non, sorry, non-European populations. So they have built a imputation panel for South Asian population. I think this is one of the first large-scale imputation panel that has been even been made. So GWAS studies from all these areas probably will make use of this, you know, UK Biobank whole genome sequencing imputation panel. Just yesterday, I was tweeting about paper that showed how to, you know, use low coverage whole genome sequencing data, combine this with UK Biobank imputation reference panel to get the best imputation performance. So that is one other use case. So there is like so many things we will see how people, you know, as I said, I'm very excited about this one, this area for the next year or also like next few years. We have uh, have UK Biobank and all of the industry funders of the sequencing to thank for this, uh, for this great. Yeah, I think it's successful, successful formula, right? I mean, there's always this gap between academic research and industry research. You know, it is always, these successful collaborations kind of show that it's possible to have this collaboration with still industry making their, you know, profits, getting out of their investment. But at the same time, it's being incredibly useful for the community, academic research community and the society. So I think it's a great thing, great examples, all these collaborations, big data. And maybe you could talk a little bit about Olink and proteomics. I only really heard of Olink for the first time maybe a year or two ago, but it seems like a really interesting approach. Maybe you could explain 
how you know, which I suspect you do because you know a lot about a lot of things, how that method for proteomics works compared to things like mass spec and others. And then what, you know, what's different about that compared to some of the other tools that we've had available in the past? Yeah. So you mean the way they measure the protein? I think this whole link is based on a body-based capture technology. So there's two very, you know, like a popular ways of measuring the proteins. One is aptamers based where, you know, we have this short chain of oligonucleotides, they identify this uh, oligonucleotides based on a huge massive library where they identify the, the oligonucleotides with specificity towards proteins. Then you use this to capture the protein in the blood and then you measure this using the regular DNA technology. I think the decode use the aptamer base to measure but in the UK biobank, O-Link is based on an antibody-based capture, but that they call this assay, I think, proximal ligation assay, extension assay. So they have this short nucleotide chain attached to the antibody. And I think they have two antibodies that are like targeting a single protein. So one of the problems with using antibodies to measure protein is cross-reactivity, right? So it's very difficult to have this antibody with very specific, uh, it binds only to this one protein. So by using two antibodies, you effectively increasing the specificity. So they have this oligonucleotides that when it comes to in proximity, then they bind and, you know, like it extends like a PCR assay. And then, you know, you measure that based on that, you met using this DNA array, you can measure it. So the main, the beauty of this is you can do it on scale. Like you can have DNA barcodes and you can really scale up. That's one of the problems with the uh, proteomics, I think, like, to challenges to scale, right? So I like measure thousands and thousands of proteins in, in an industry scale level. So that's the technology. And still we are having, still people are evaluating how accurate is this, what are the false positive findings. But so far it's been great. And it's a lot of findings replicate across cohorts, across technology. That's what the published papers have shown. So this data set is going to be, you know, exciting. And I think at the ASHG this year, already there was like representation of this data set in at least 15 to 20 abstracts in posters and talks. There's also a talk from Chris Willen. I think he's the main lead of this analytical work group for the proteomics in the UK Biobank conference, the winter symposium that happened a few weeks ago. And uh, so there's like a lot of exciting use cases. So one, mainly in the drug target discovery, this is going to enhance our resolution of genetic associations because every time when we find an association between a common variant of the trait or a rare variant of the trait, the natural question is that how this variant is affecting the protein, the, right? So is it increasing the protein or decreasing the protein? Because that is the fundamental information that we need to divide, to propose a hypothesis that this is how you are going to treat the disease, right? So and it's going to be very helpful for that. And uh, so looking at the association at the proteins. And uh, so there are a lot of times, you know, there's two kinds of genetics, reverse genetics, forward genetics. The classical genetics that we do is that we start with the phenotype, do a genetic association. We identify an association, then go back to the genome and the locus and identify the gene. And the reverse genetics can be like, you start with the gene, you know, this gene is important, this has a specific role in the, this disease, and what is the consequence of mutations in this gene in the population? So using this proteomics, you can actually combine these two. For example, you first discover the gene, then go back to the gene and look at the associations at a final level with the 
more power associations with the actual protein, then you can identify important variants. What are the missense variants that are more important in this protein or pathogenic or the loss of function variants? Then you go back to the population data sets and look at these associations and increase the power for, right? Because now you are essentially reducing the number of variants to truly affecting variants, right? So that's one exciting area. And uh, predictions, we already talked about it. And we know like we have a lot of ways to predict the pathogen, pathogenicity of the variants computationally, right? We have different ways to say if a missense variant is pathogenic. And uh, so I think like, this has been excellent data set to create an another, you know, like such a prediction score by combining with other scores, you can even improve the performance of this prediction. So you can, you know, say if it is affecting the protein and in what ways it is affecting the protein. So that will be like very useful in a clinical genetic as well as in the population genetics when people are, want, you know, imagine going back to a database like Nomad and looking at the uh, genetic variant and then also you're getting the information. Right. What is the effect of this variant on the protein level? Is it like increasing or decreasing? Or what is the scale of this association? It's going to be amazing if you have this information in the future. And I think like a lot of other ways, Mendelian randomization, both for drug discovery as well as in the you know epidemiological studies. So a lot of questions, interesting questions you can answer because now you have you can have more stronger genetic instruments because like Protein is very close to the DNA compared to a phenotype. You know, that's like a very distal consequence. So essentially by using this protein, you can have like more stronger instruments for doing this causal association. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think UK Biomic is the gift that keeps on giving. I I just want to say thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. If I can quickly summarize, we talked about tweet threads, chat GPT. We talked about natural selection of through the Black Plague and its effect on modern day. Number of milestone achievements, the largest height GWAS ever, which I learned is a, quite a definitive moment in, in the field. We talked a lot about exomes, genomes, proteomics, a step in the right direction, as you put it, in some large-scale, more representative populations, including Mexico, India, and Africa. And then, you know, I think we just covered what's in store for 2023. But I'd like to say thank you for thank, taking the time out of, much, out of your holiday. I'm really sorry for extending it for long. I think probably one of the longest in your seat. No, this is like the Joe Rogan length we've gone for. <laughs> we haven't hit the three hour mark. I think we're we're well below two hours, which is great. I like you love to talk about this stuff. So it could be here. I could be here all all night. So thank you. Happy holidays. And thank um, you very much. Thank you very much. We'll and do this happy again holidays soon. to you. See you. Bye. See you soon.